0: Hello, and welcome back to Parallel Passion. This is episode number 10, and I want to thank you personally. Thank you for listening and for sharing my podcast with your friends. The listener numbers have far exceeded my initial goals, and I couldn't be happier. Well, with a bit more Patreon donations, I would be, but that's another story. Again, thank you for listening and keep sharing this podcast with your network of friends and followings. In this episode, I'm joined by philosopher-engineer Don Goodman-Wilson. He's a developer advocacy evangelist at GitHub, but I got to know him a couple of years back when he worked on one of my favorite tools ever, Screen Hero. He likes to apply machine learning to magic and play with trains. This sentence won't make any sense until you listen to the episode, so let's get right to it. Hi, Don. Welcome to Parallel Passion. Hey, Mia. It's really good to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, how have you been recently?
1: Oh, it's been it's
0: been an exciting time at GitHub. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, since you brought it up, um, is it felt inside the company like the the whole Microsoft acquisition? Uh, like, is is anyone scared of this, or are you mostly just excited? Like, what's the general feeling? inside a company
1: i think the general feeling is intense optimism for the future of, of github uh this acquisition frees us up to really focus on on what we do best um and maybe not have to worry so much about uh satisfying the investors you know right. so we can we can just really do the do the stuff
0: we're good at yeah that's I mean, sure. That's the that's the answer you have to give, but you know. <laughs>
1: no, no. I think I think it's genuinely felt like once once it sunk in what was happening and why it was happening. Um, and I'm sure you saw, um, Nat Friedman's uh, AMA on Reddit. Like, mm-hmm. I, we feel very good about this. There, there's there really is intense optimism for for what's happening. I think.
0: Yeah that's that's good. I mean I'm I'm happy for you obviously cuz you know taking VC capital you always have that burden that like oh maybe they will just decide one day oh they we have to do that and you have no control over that. Whilst if you have a company that sort of believes like where you want to go um then I guess it's much much easier to to do it that.
1: Yeah yeah we get to be our own guiding star now I think. Well we always were to be to to, to be fair but but now we Yeah yeah we're cut loose from the, the 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 vc carrot
0: i mean you have some experience with that if you if you want to talk about um on uh, screen hero uh acquisition because that's actually how i like how i got to know you um like you used to work on on screen hero and then you got bought by slack and unlike this github acquisition where microsoft will just let github be github um slack basically wanted it for the technology and it sort of not really uh, uh, incorporated into uh into the slack right yeah i think
1: that acquisition remains controversial in the community w- which is fair like screen hero was a tool a lot of people relied on Um uh, I'm biased. I worked on it. I think it was an awesome tool. Um and a lot of people are sad to see it um to see it go away. Um that said, I think at this point most of the functionality, almost all of the functionalities actually incorporated into Slack. Uh they did release screen sharing not too long ago. Yeah. Um I haven't had a chance to to play with it yet to be completely <laughs> honest hmm. uh because my my coworkers don't typically use uh, um, the calls feature inside of Slack. I've been, I've been teaching them all, uh, all about it. It came as a surprise to quite a lot of them, in fact. Uh, But GitHub is a company that's very reliant on um, Zoom in particular for, for teleconferencing because a lot of people are working from home or or they're gathered in a, in a conference room. but yeah, at, at Slack, it was definitely an acquisition for the for the technology, and the product went away. But I think that's the GitHub's not going anywhere. Uh, by way of comparison,
0: yeah, I, I see Zoom being used more and more, which is interesting because it's the ugliest tool in the world, and the UX is just the worst. <laughs> but the technology behind it must be amazing because uh, we used it at my previous company with like. 400 people on the call and it worked flawlessly which is like insane i don't even know how they're doing that
1: yeah it's like the the technology holy grail right teleconferencing that actually works they're, they're awfully close to to achieving that
0: yeah just please hire some ux designers i mean come on that tool is oh so bad i've seen worse <laughs> well i mean but like, it's, like you said uh yeah that uh of course stuff is now inside slack but uh Only if you download it from Slack, so not from the slack from the Mac app store yes, and also only if you're a paying user yes which um i I think screen hero worked as free tool uh for like one on one right
1: uh screen hero had a free tier, yes, we also had um a paying tier as well. To be honest, I don't actually remember what the different tiers yeah. offered.
0: <laughs> Me um, neither.
1: <laughs> it's been it's been so long since I've thought about it's it. It's been a while. But yeah, the uh, the having to download Slack directly from Slack is just a, a fundamental limitation. Um, the technology that Screen Hero and that Slack leverage for the the screen sharing um, requires access outside of the App Store sandbox, which is why Screen Hero was never available on the App Store either. So that's not surprising. And I'm glad that they, they took the rather bold step of offering their own download so that they could enable that, that technology. Because mm-hmm. um, without it, like none of the magic of the, the screen sharing really works.
0: Yeah, uh, maybe that will change with uh, Mojave and the changes they're doing to the sandbox. Let's hope at least. <laughs> maybe so.
1: I haven't actually looked very closely to, to see what those changes entail.
0: Oh yeah, so uh, there's a lot of companies that uh, went away from the Mac store because of the weird sandboxing are coming back Um, and they did a lot of changes to how sandboxing will work on a Mac. And supposedly um, it is now much more friendlier to actual applications, not just you know iOS ports.
1: Hmm. Well, that'll be interesting to see. I have have my doubts that this will help Slack. (laughs) I I don't know how it works in Slack, but in Screen Hero, there's a whole lot of... uh, um, messing around with the usb drivers at the kernel level um and something tells me that poses a real security risk um uh, for for company you know to allow that inside the sandbox
0: yeah yeah probably i i remember you just brought up the point like i remember my mouse breaking so like it worked with other mices but like with mine it didn't work it's like oh you need a we actually override the drivers like oh why Yeah, yeah,
1: we had a lot of we had a lot of mouse model specific code in there for, for exactly that
0: reason. <laughs> so um, you now work at GitHub as um, developer advocacy evangelist. So can you explain this title, like w- what it is that you actually do at GitHub?
1: Oh, that that title of my Twitter handle is is uh, whimsical. I uh, advocate <laughs> for for developer evangelism and evangelize for for developer advocacy. <laughs> Um, so my job as a developer advocate uh, at GitHub or at other places uh, is to, to work with um, companies that have platforms like GitHub's API uh, and to find the, the developers who are building on that API, building in that ecosystem or, or want to build or could be building um, in that ecosystem and to m- empower them, to give them the greatest chance of being uh, as successful as possible on that platform uh, through educational content like uh, blog posts or um, uh, talks at conferences, uh, meeting with them one on one to broader community building uh, aspects of the job, right? Like um, uh, basically bringing them together online or an actual meetings so they can they can meet each other and help each other succeed uh, uh, and build off of each other's success. So it, it's a role that combines my passion for for teaching um, and my passion for for engineering and especially for APIs, uh, and so for me, it's a it's a lot of fun to uh, help other people help other people succeed and uh, and building the things that they want to build.
0: Yeah, I, I can see that sort of like a, a pattern because like if you think about it, like I never really used Screen Hero as a tool to um, I don't know collaborate or anything. It was always just to help people out, um, either as um, I, I like. I don't know, I never like collaborated on a painting or a document or whatever with Screen Hero but I often used it like, Oh, how how do you do this? And like can you explain this to me? And with like with Screen Hero that was just much, much easier to do than with any other tool. So I'm I'm guessing that was also your motivation there.
1: <laughs> I've never actually thought about it like that. But <laughs> okay, then When not. you put it like that, that makes <laughs> sense. No, my motivation there was at the time I was a low-level C-hacker looking to break into Silicon Valley um, mm-hmm. and they, they needed a low-level C- C-hacker. <laughs> and they were in Silicon Valley uh, and we liked each other. And so it, it was a good fit. I wasn't really thinking too much about teaching at the time. In fact, at the time, we didn't even know who was using Screen Hero, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until later that the... Um, you know the the remote pairing aspect of it um really became obvious to us as the you know its its purpose but yeah, that's an interesting connection to draw
0: yeah i mean it was always hard to explain what makes it so magical cuz just saying oh yeah you have like two mouse cursors um yeah okay so what but like when actually using it it's like it was unlike anything else yeah yeah it was
1: it made it very hard to market too yeah,
0: um, I can imagine.
1: <laughs> you just got to try it. Like, oh, come on, really, you can't describe it in words. Well, I I could, but they won't mean anything to you until you try it.
0: Yeah, you know, it's like Twitter. Like, how how do you explain the purpose of Twitter to someone that doesn't use it? Like, oh, just just try it, use it for a while and then eventually you'll understand. <laughs> yes. Which is also their problem actually. <laughs>
1: hmm. Yeah, yeah, they've got so many people using it. I I guess that's less of a problem for them
0: now. Yeah, but I don't know how how much money they're making. Anyway, as a as a uh, like developer advocate, I guess you get to like travel a lot to to the conferences or do you mostly do stuff remotely like how does uh, how does it usually work for you?
1: Well, so travel is definitely one of the benefits of the job. Um depending on Who you are uh, and what company you work at, the amount of travel can can vary quite a lot. So I know people who basically live on the road and are at home, you know, just a few days out of every month. Um, uh, For myself, I I have a a family here. I I enjoy my apartment. I don't like to travel quite that much. (laughs) Um, And so, so for me, it's it's you know maybe about a a quarter of my time, perhaps that I spend I spend traveling. Um, And in my current role, I get to focus um, on Europe. Um, the Middle East and Africa, specifically, so I get to stay relatively close to home. Uh, right now, I'm living in Paris, uh, so I don't I don't have to be I don't have to be gone a very long time. Just you know, for a, a day trip to a conference, which is nice.
0: Mm-hmm. What actually brought you to Paris? Because you're from US originally, so how come you settled for for Paris?
1: Um, I fell in love with the Paris tech scene uh, the first time I encountered it uh, as a developer advocate for for Slack. Uh, There's a lot of passion in the Paris tech scene for uh, community building uh, and for Slack um and it was very easy for me to uh build a network with the the tech community here because they were so vocal and so outspoken um and so uh, when it came time for me to to move on to my next adventure paris was a was a pretty obvious next choice for me to uh to experience a new tech scene outside of the silicon valley bubble
0: yeah that's uh, interesting and did do you, uh, did you learn any any french uh oui je parle un peu de français mais c'est c'est très très difficile pour moi yes whatever you said
1: (laughs) (laughs) the french speakers uh listening will will know what i said um (laughs) both of them (laughs) (laughs) it's very difficult for me but uh yes we've we've had to learn french um the funny thing is in two weeks from right now the moment that we're recording this we'll be moving to amsterdam Uh, github has an office in amsterdam and i'm I'm attached to that office so Mm -hmm. um it's sad to say goodbye to Paris. Uh, it's been a really fun adventure here, but but we're super excited about Amsterdam too.
0: Hopefully you don't have to learn Dutch, because now that's a weird language. <laughs> Dutch is a very weird language, and yes, we are going to have to learn it. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, um, I feel sorry for you and your kids, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter's
1: actually... Very, very excited to learn Dutch. It was very surprising to me. But uh, she, she's got my wife's language bug. They they both really just love learning languages. So she's excited. How old is she? She's nine years old.
0: Oh, okay. So yeah, that's, then I can understand. Because maybe like if she was a bit older, there would be other reasons she would be really looking forward to moving to Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> How come you prefer working from Europe than than from US? Because obviously, you have the like US citizenship, you can go you can go back whenever you want.
1: That's a fraught question. <laughs> um,
0: I am um, not sure where
1: to begin to answer that one. So. Part of it is our family just simply, we, we, we love to travel. Uh, as you know, while well, we met uh, during a month's stay in, in yep. And, uh, you know, we, we we love Europe. We love Australia. We love Japan. We lived in in, uh, in Kyoto for a while. We lived in Budapest for a while. Uh, and we always thought that we would try our hand at, at living overseas on a, on a more permanent basis. Uh, it's just something that, that we've always uh, aspired to as a family. Now that we're here in Europe, you know, we, we very much like the pattern of life here we like um the the systems that are that are set up to support people um we like the the good public transit uh, it's very hard to find in the united states uh we, we just feel like we can live the the kind of uh of lifestyle that we want to live much more easily in europe mm-hmm. than we can in the united states
0: yeah i i mean sure of course i will agree because i'm like i'm from here um but um I've I've never really understood this American obsession with being at work for like 16 hours or anything like that. You rarely see this in in Europe or like if at all.
1: No, I can't say that I get that obsession either. I'm very lucky to have worked for a number of companies and I continue actually to work for for companies that that understand that that's unhealthy um, and that doesn't actually increase productivity to encourage long, long hours. Uh, but yeah, I don't. I really don't get that.
0: Uh, I don't know. Maybe AI and machine learning will change all of that, but I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. And uh, speaking of machine learning, um, I I know you like you like doing a bit of that on on uh, on the side. So, um, what got you into it? So as a
1: as an undergraduate at, at Mississippi State University, I was very lucky to uh, work with um, a couple of professors there, the doctors Bogus. Uh, who, who are also the parents of my, my best friend in high school. Um, uh, and they worked on a number of, of AI projects. This is in the late 90s, early 2000s. So, mm-hmm. so it was a bit of a different world then. But uh, yeah. they introduced me to uh, artificial neural networks and they introduced me to artificial immune systems and to genetic algorithms. Um, and I got to, to play around a lot with these um, in, a, in a research setting. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, and it's something I put down a long time ago. Um, but I'm trying to bring myself back up to speed uh, with this this technology because I, I, I just I continue to find it fascinating.
0: So what are you working on
1: so so lately, I've been trying to revive some old genetic algorithm code that I wrote twenty years ago um, and make sure that it still works mm-hmm. uh, and amazingly, it, it still does. Um, <laughs> And there are a lot of bugs in it that I didn't spot the first time around. Um, and now I'm applying it to um, uh, magic cards, of all things. <laughs> so magic cards are fascinating to me on a, on a variety of different levels. So it's a it's a game whose rules change as you play it, um, which is something that's always been fascinating to me. I don't know if you're familiar with a game called Gnomic. No. So Gnomic is, is one of these games um it's actually meant to model like parliamentary procedure Hmm. and so it sets starts off with a a set of of rules um, some more mutable than others uh, and the rules are basically they explain how to change the rules Um, so it's like a constitution for government right Right. Uh, which sets out like here's what the rules look like here's how you can change the rules
0: um, so that's a board game, or how does it work?
1: No, it's uh, you just play it sitting around a table. It's not. Okay. It's not a board game per se. You can just print up the rules. Uh, okay, when I last okay. played it in college, we did it on on index cards, um, and then the goal of the game isn't really stipulated, uh, and it's up to you and the other players to determine like what the winning conditions are. Are there winning conditions? Uh, and the whole the way the whole way you play the game is to create new rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and so magic's a little bit like this uh, it's a game where as you play you're you're altering the the dynamic of the game itself you're, you're changing the the flow of things changing the, the rules as they come along um, which makes it exceedingly exceedingly complex right each of the cards in the game just has like blocks of text that explain what they what they do um, and I, I find it a fascinating exercise like finding, interesting combinations of cards that change the, the way the game is played in, in fun or unexpected ways. Um, that's that's my draw to the game.
0: So you're basically looking for bugs or just sort of interesting features?
1: Interesting features, let's say. There are definitely people who play the game uh, looking for bugs to exploit, uh, looking for, as, as they call them, broken cards that mm-hmm. they can use to completely dominate and like to set up an infinite loop or something like that. But mm-hmm. I just like the, the fun and unexpected. Um, I can't. Yeah, I don't really play to win. Uh, in part because I, I just I'm not very good at the
0: games. <laughs> <So, laughs> that's all right. So, how do you inform the model? Do you just like paste in all the all the cards, or do you record the the gameplay? Or uh... so so n- none of this, in fact.
1: Um, so there are a couple of really good APIs out there um, that give you access to card data. So Scryfall. Um, is is one of these sites. So it's a site where you can you can search for cards and things like that. And they have an API where you can pull down all the text from the cards and the images from the cards and uh, rulings on the cards and so on and so forth. Um, and what I'm trying to do is combine that with with data from winning decks, which is also available from APIs on on other websites to understand like what makes what makes a winning deck. Um, so I'm, I'm taking the card text, uh, and running it through, I can never remember how to pronounce it. <laughs> Di- Dichrolette analysis. I might have to look that one up so that I can, I can look this up. This is a new technique to me. So, I, you know, I'm having a little difficulty remembering the, the name of it. Um, actually, hold on, give me, give me just a moment and I'm going <laughs> to
0: <laughs> look it up. Yeah, we can fix it in both. <laughs> yeah.
1: My goal, um, is to pull down the text of magic cards, and use a technique called latent directlet allocation uh, to classify the rules text. So this is a, a mechanism that looks at uh, the words as they occur in the text um, and performs a statistical analysis that says, look, here's here's a couple of different cards, and they have rules text that are very similar. So we're going to say, these cards are very similar, right? We'll just call that Uh, class one, right? Mm -hmm. And then here's, here's some more rules text on different cards and they all look very similar. And there's a lot of cards that have the similar rules text. We'll call that class two and so on and so forth. And you tell it how many classes you expect to find and it'll, it'll classify uh, the rules text into, you know, that number of of classes. Uh, And so then it builds a statistical model and you can then say, Hey, here's a novel card. What is it? It says, Oh, well, the rules text on there looks like a combination of class two and class 15. Okay. So, that's not super useful by itself, but we can look at then successful uh, you know, winning decks uh, from another API that tracks like uh, how decks are used at tournaments and how they perform mm-hmm. and say, well, here's the cards in, in these decks. And we see that winning decks often combine, say class, class 32 and class seven. Um, and then these other kinds of winning decks often combine cards of class, you know, 18, and cl- I'm making up numbers here, in yeah, yeah. class 42. And so then, you can say, OK, so we have uh, it looks like if you if you have if you have these kinds of cards together, they they tend to hang together as a nice deck. And if you have these kinds of cards together, they also tend to hang together in a nice deck. And so now we have kind of a, a pretty picture of what what a successful deck looks like. Um, a successful deck is a deck that is composed of cards of class two, five, 13 or 42, for example. So then we can feed. This notion of what a good deck is into into a genetic algorithm. And this is where things get really interesting for me. Um, so I can revive this this old old, old code um, that I that I had for for running genetic algorithms. And the idea is um, you take some large number of completely random decks, and and the decks are generated specifically only from cards that I own because I'm cheap and I want to know what's what's hanging <laughs> out in my card collection that I can take advantage of. Of course. Right? And um, and it's called genetic algorithm because it treats each deck as a chromosome, right? As a sequence of genes, and each card is one gene in this this chromosome. Um, and it can look at each of these these random decks and evaluate them according to the criteria I just laid out. Like, well, it's got it's got a card of class thirty two. Does it also have a card of class fourteen in it? No. Okay, then this one's not very good. Yes, then then maybe this one is very good. And it ranks all of the decks on a on a, a an arbitrary scale of goodness from you know (laughs) zero to ten or something like that and then it randomly selects pairs uh, with the selection process being weighted more heavily towards the more successful or the the better decks Um, and then it takes those two chromosomes and it literally well not literally almost literally like shuffles them together right Uh, it it cuts them up and pieces them back together to make a new deck right uh, more or less randomly and then it does that some very large number of times creates a a new potential population ranks the goodness of each of those and repeat over and over tens of thousands of times Um, and what happens is the average fitness the average goodness fitness is the the technical term here will actually increase over time quite dramatically in fact Mm -hmm. Um, this is a surprisingly good technique for um, improving the fitness of the population and moreover the the top Decks, um, the fitness of the top decks in each generation will, will increase significantly as well. And so, at the end of some number of generations, you just look at the the, the most fit deck there, and um, hopefully, what you have is something something pretty good.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this um, I I once saw a pretty good explanation of all this, like how um, AI works in these generations and all that, on the base of playing um, a Mario game. Uh, level in Mario where they show like the the fitness and the advances it does like you can see all the things that it tries and um well seemingly random you can see that over generations it's less and less random cuz it knows or at least it tries to know more and more what it can do and how it can do that and it's it's fascinating seeing just like how how it evolves and i'll i'll try to put that video in the in the show notes if i find it but it's um yeah it's it, the whole thing on this generational learning is something very interesting to to just to watch
1: yeah, it's it's super fascinating. I mean, when when you, once you get your hands on one of these systems and you 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 watch it grow and learn, it's, it, it just it hooks you right in.
0: Yeah. So, um, do you have an end goal for this, or is it just like to get the best the best stack pop uh, possible out of your current owned cars? Cards.
1: Um, I don't know. There's an end goal in this specifically. Uh, it's more like. It's more like an excuse to to learn some new things, an excuse to clean up some old code, uh, an excuse to sucker as many people I can into uh, <laughs> sharing this passion with me of applying uh, machine learning to to magic. Um, Do you have this thing online anywhere? Yeah, it's it's all on uh, it's all on GitHub. I okay. can share the the URLs with you. Some of the the um, latent dielectric allocation uh, code is not up on GitHub yet, but I'll, I'll put it up quite soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, I, I want to—I just want to go digging through this collection of cards I have, uh, many of which you know are, will never see play otherwise—and find fun ways to to play with them.
0: Yeah, I—I I mean, I'm not like really familiar with the game, but I know just enough that this like sounds sounds exciting. If I if I would be into it,
1: <laughs> I mean, one thing that that a lot of players have is they just have thousands of cards that are sitting in a box um and that that feels i don't know it sounds sad to me Mm -hmm. the idea that there are these cards just sitting in a box
0: so your idea is that you can leverage them and they will start using a card that they forgot that has like certain use when used with other certain cards yeah maybe maybe yeah interesting so when you're not uh, on on a computer i guess uh, as far as i know you're also, an engineer, uh, like on throughout, like even when you're not coding, then you are just like dive down in electrical engineering. Yeah, is there any any project that you're working on right now?
1: At the moment, no. So when I moved to Paris, unfortunately, um, I couldn't take a lot of my my uh, uh, electrical engineering equipment with me. It was all keyed to you know US 110 volt power. Oh right, um, yeah. So my soldering iron, my oscilloscope, and all like that. I, I had to, to get rid of those before I moved here. So I haven't done anything lately. Um, my daughter doesn't know this yet, but uh, with her birthday coming up, I've gotten her uh, a, a, an Arduino
0: introductory kit. <laughs> so it's it's sort of a gift for you, but really it's for me. So we work on it together.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so she, she's expressed interest, actually. Oh, that's uh, great. I don't know... What, Where this came from, but she, she's expressed interest in having a weather station in her room so she can know how to dress in the mornings. Um, the weather here in Paris and weather in Amsterdam can be, uh, quite unpredictable. So today it's sunny and warm yesterday. It was rainy and cold. Um, (laughs) There's, there's no obvious way to know how to dress. So she wants a weather station in her, her room uh, to tell her how to dress. So I think uh, maybe the first thing that we do with this is we're going to we're going to try building a weather station with a little display that she can she can have by her bed in the morning. Um, we'll see how that goes. I think that's that's coming up next month.
0: If if she's into it, you could do a lot of interesting stuff with that, like just uh, record the the type of things she did dress based on past analysis, and then how oh, this didn't work out. And then for the next time, it can predict better.
1: Oh, yeah, there you go. We could even have a display that just tells her what to wear. <laughs> you know, it answers the question directly.
0: There was a weather app like that for a Mac that just showed you like what you should wear, like literally, just not temperatures, but like should you have a sweater or something. I forgot how it was called, but I'll I'll find it. <laughs> it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, that would be pretty awesome. Like you said, you didn't bring your electrical ties, but did you bring your trains over when moving to
1: I did bring my trains. Um I I don't have a way of plugging my controllers in, unfortunately. So I haven't actually had a chance to to pull them out, but uh uh I I did bring yeah, I can't I can't bear to part with them. Um so I have a collection of uh, model trains that are all from Japan. Um, having lived in Japan for a while, it's hard not to become obsessed with the uh, the Japanese rail system. It's it's extensive, and uh, the trains are often um, they often feature very flashy designs in order to get people's attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to you know, it's a sort of marketing to ride the train. Hey, you could ride this train. It looks super cool, and it goes to a you know a fun resort destination. So. Buy a ticket, um, and so I have a I have a, quite a collection of, of models of those kinds of trains because I think they're uh, they're fascinating to look at, and they're they're very relaxing to just put on a, a loop of track and, and let them
0: run. I I think what would fascinate me about Japanese trains is that they are on time, which I don't know how it is in in Paris and in France, but it's definitely not the case in Slovenia. <laughs> yeah it's not often the case
1: here no they they can be but it just there's somebody many, so many things that happen here that uh that wouldn't wouldn't happen in japan um so so for example uh you know the Japanese high speed trains are are completely grade separated so they're they're above the ground or they're under the ground you can't wander onto the tracks mm-hmm. uh by accident um. Uh, cars don't get stalled on on rail crossings and things like that. And that goes a, a very long way to maintaining their their on time record, right? But here in France, for example, where the rail system is much older, uh, you know the high speed trains run on the same tracks as all the other trains, and they're ground level, and you know maybe animals wander under the tracks, or there could be a car stalled, or there's all sorts of reasons why, yeah, why there might be might be delays.
0: So I didn't even know that Japan has like an obsession with, with like you said, um, designs of trains. I, I know sure the, the like the design that has to be like a bullet train has to be designed a certain way for like aerodynamic purposes. But I didn't know they like play on, on that.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so many of the new uh, bullet trains that have come out in recent years feature uh, very bright colors uh, that are tied to the regions that they serve. So I don't I don't myself fully understand the cultural significance of these colors, but they're they're often recognizable as, oh, yes, this is a train that goes to that region because it's it's in this this very colorful livery. And that evokes uh, for many you know images of the region that it that it serves mm-hmm. um, in other cases, as you can imagine, there's lots of, of cute animated characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for example, the Aizu region of, of Japan um, has this uh, legend. About uh, this red uh, this red cow that was Buddhist. Um, I'm not sure how they knew the cow was was um, was Buddhist, um, <laughs> but it's a it's a really interesting story and it's really important to the region. So the train that serves the the Aizu region from Tokyo, uh, I, actually, I'm not sure if it's still running, but there was at least at one time a train that served that region. They painted it bright red and they decorated it. Uh, with this cartoon version of uh, of that Buddhist cow, uh, and it's super cute, <laughs> uh, uh, and it's it's certainly very catchy to the eye. But you know, everybody who sees that train says, "Oh, well, that's the you know that's a resort train to to Aizu because you you can tell it's got the the cow on it."
0: So, is is this one of the models you have? It, it is, in fact, one of the models I have. <laughs> yes. Do you have then just like one uh rail track and then different model trains or do you have all sorts of things?
1: Um I have I have all sorts of things. So one of the interesting differences in in uh Japanese culture and Western culture around model trains is that you know in the United States and in Europe, people who are very into model trains will often take a, a room in their house or maybe their their basement or something like that, and create this this permanent landscape, this very intricate, detailed model of a of a fictional or a real place. Yeah, um, and they'll run trains through this this fictional landscape. In the U.S., especially, it's very popular to uh, not just you know run trains around in circles, but to to invite people over and get involved in like full scale logistical simulation
0: and have all the, the tunnels and mountains and things flashing and, and everything yeah, and the, the
1: cities and the, and, and it's all very detailed and, and it's all very permanent. Um, so in Japan space is extremely limited. Um, and there's no room for any kind of permanent layout like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they do instead is they, they take a very, a very minimalist almost Zen approach to it. <laughs> um, and they they create uh, layouts that are temporary from pieces of track that snap together and come apart. Um, and they'll add maybe just a little bit of you know very schematic scenery to evoke a mood, right? Rather than something very detailed and concrete, it's it's very very schematic and minimalist, um, almost like a almost like a Zen garden. In fact, um, they'll enjoy you know, running trains on this layout for an evening. And at the end of the evening, the track comes apart it goes in boxes, goes up on a shelf. Um, and uh, as somebody who moves around a whole lot and lives in small apartments, that's, that's the approach I've taken as well. So I have a few boxes of track that go up on a shelf and I can pull it down and put it on a table and enjoy the trains
0: for an evening and then put them back up when I'm done. How, how long does it take you to set everything up?
1: Uh, it Depends on how elaborate I want to get. Uh, it might take five minutes just to put together a very small loop of track, or if I want to get more elaborate with it, uh, you know, maybe as, as long
0: as an hour. Okay. And so what do you mean by elaborate? Like did, what what kind of parts do you have? Like is I'm I'm having trouble imagining this. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. So um so for example, a very basic setup would just be, you know, a, a little loop of track. Mm-hmm. Um quite straightforward. But to get more elaborate, then you could um uh, put the, the, the overhead uh, catenary lines on, right? So, so the oh, little right. poles yeah. that hold up the, the overhead lines because the trains are electrified. Yeah. And then you can put on little sidewalls and then you can put them up on, on piers to simulate elevated track. Um, and then make more elaborate layouts with, like, you know, double parallel tracks so you can run trains in two directions at the same time, or with sidings so you can you can swap trains in and out as you go, uh, and elevation changes, um, all that kind of thing. And so, so there the potential for lots of little tiny fiddly bits to be to be set up uh to make it to make it look just so
0: do you do this by yourself or, or is it a practice that i i don't know you practice with your your family or with your daughter like how um or is it just for you like your own peace of mind i need to relax All gonna go play with trains for a bit uh
1: i think largely it's just for my own peace of mind my, my daughter enjoys uh playing with them too she likes especially racing trains uh, uh and that that's fun and it's undeniable um uh, but sometimes, yeah, it's just for me to to sit and uh, and watch the lights go around in a circle and <laughs> and sort of uh, just zone out on the the sound of the the motors and the the wheels on the rails.
0: Do you have any special uh, sound effects and and like uh, when when they're passing by, uh, imitating Japanese trains, <laughs> uh, or is it just like the engine noise of whatever tiny electrical engine is in there?
1: Yeah, usually it's just the electrical noise of the the tiny little little engine. But in, in fact, um, I have recordings of uh, trains coming and going uh, in Japan. So the the microphone I'm using now is actually a a Sony field recorder that I I purchased specifically for uh, going to Japan (laughs) and making recordings of trains passing um, uh, precisely so I could set up that that sort of uh, ambiance when I'm playing with my trains. I have yet to follow through on that, but I have have quite a, a collection of like... People milling about at stations and station announcements and trains coming and going and you know the the door chime sounding uh, that kind of thing. So so I could I could set something like that up in the future.
0: Do you use that as a white noise while while coding?
1: Um, I I tried that before, but it's it's awfully time intensive to to put that together. It's it's something I would I would it's something I would certainly be interested in, in playing with more. Um, do you know a uh, There's this Python library called Boodler?
0: No. What does it do?
1: Boodler, B O O D L E R. It's a it's a Python library for dynamically assembling ambient soundscapes.
0: Oh.
1: Um, and so it allows you to programmatically. Uh, well a simple a simple soundscape so you can say like here, here is the sound of a, of a train passing you know play this more or less randomly every five seconds uh you know here's a bunch of samples of crowd noise to sort of randomly fade these in and out of each other um
0: yeah i don't know that but i know several like websites that are like white noise g- generators where you can adjust like i don't know rain and thunder and, and stuff like that but um I don't know. I I don't find that relaxing one bit. I know some <laughs> people need uh, some sort of white noise to to relax. I I know for a couple of people that they cannot sleep if they don't hear a fan running, which like to me, I don't know, that would drive me insane if I would hear like a fan <laughs> running all the time. We
1: we actually have a fan running in our bedroom for exactly that that reason. There you uh. go. <laughs> Oh, and come to think of it, now that you mention it, we often do play a, a like a thunderstorm soundscape from a, a, an iPhone app that we have to to make some noise to mask the neighbors upstairs and help us sleep at night.
0: Well, you could also use earplugs, you know, and just be in dead silence. We, we tried that too, but they they just fall out. No, well, maybe maybe you have big ears. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have the opposite problem. Like they can be too tight and then I can get too hot and whatever. But like luckily I don't have much problems falling asleep. Um the, the only things that that keep me awake is like uh old clock ticking. That just drives me up the wall. I cannot sleep if there's a clock anywhere in the radio is going tick, 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 you know, I just I go crazy. Yeah. I can well
1: imagine. One of our fans has begun making a very high-pitched whine very very quiet very quiet i can only hear it if my head lies a certain way <laughs> and it it sounds to me in the morning when i when i'm uh, just starting to wake up like it's my my alarm going off in the other room um, and so it just jolts me right awake as soon as i i begin to notice it of course it's not my alarm going off it's the uh, fan whine. but
0: yeah i understand i, I can relate <laughs> <laughs> so One thing that I also saw in your Twitter bio is that, uh, yeah, sure, you're like an engineer and teacher and you already said that you love Boeing, both of those things. But it says that you're also a philosopher. Um, Is this just something you put in the bio or did you actually like, um, do you enjoy reading uh, philosophy or like just? talking about it like what what's your relation with philosophy
1: so my relationship with philosophy is that i actually have a phd in philosophy uh and for many years was a philosophy professor in fact oh okay <laughs> i was uh, yes i i'm a recovering academic philosopher <laughs> that should be your title <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a fantastic time in my life but um these days i tend to I, tr- I try to find ways to combine what I learned as a philosopher, and not just about philosophy, but about uh, critical thinking, about teaching other people, about helping other people, um, about editing papers, um, you know, to my, to my everyday life. So I like to find ways to combine philosophy and engineering. Uh, and it usually ends up being very, very pragmatic ways that these things combine with each other.
0: I have, I have so many questions now that I don't even know in which direction to go. But <laughs> first, like, how does a, a philosophy major end up writing C++? Uh,
1: well, actually, it went the other way around. So I started in computer science um, at Mississippi State University. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I was very interested in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, and so at the end of my undergraduate career... Uh, I decided to, um, uh, pursue a graduate program in cognitive psychology, uh, with the feeling that, um, biological models were very interesting for constructing artificial intelligences, um, or artificial intelligence algorithms. Uh, and I wanted to study more like how, how does the brain actually function? Uh, and so I got very interested in cognitive psychology, um, and then, um, in one of the intro to psychology classes, one of the things that they they hammer into us very early is that uh, correlation is not causation, right? Yeah, causation is often correlation, but a lot of correlation doesn't have doesn't have a causal story behind it.
0: Yeah, if there would be a motto, I could like write somewhere that like i would read every day or that people could read every day that would be it because so often so often do you see people go wrong like just equaling those two but it's like they're, they're not related at all
1: right well the relationship is more nuanced than that but that's the punchline um and so we, we were we were told very early one of the ways that psychological research is often conducted is through surveys, right? Um, and uh, what you can glean from a survey we're told is only only correlational data, yeah, right? Because we don't we haven't performed an experiment. An experiment is necessary to establish causal relationships. And I asked my professor why why is that? Like, what is it about experimentation that's special and that reveals causal relationships where survey data can't? And he said, uh, you're in the wrong department. That's a philosophical question. We're not going to answer that here. And so I said, okay, maybe I am in the wrong department. Um, and I went on to study this, this question, uh, uh at the, at the doctoral level. Um, and so i i actually find it quite interesting because it turns out under certain conditions you can in fact infer causal relationships from survey data um you have to be very specific about the way that you go about it but it is actually
0: possible in in what way like if you have it uh, over certain yearly periods or can you do it from a single survey?
1: No, definitely not from a single survey. Um, my math is now going to fail on me because I haven't actually thought about this particular question for like ten years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to leave, leave that 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 fiat claim out there that there are if if you're willing to take on certain assumptions that are not unreasonable and you're willing to structure your survey data and uh, or your survey questions in a particular way, you, you can uncover uh, causal relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was really interested in like, uh, the question of what makes experimentation special. Um, and so my research focused on understanding the assumptions that were necessary, um, and the, the, the formal reasoning that was necessary to infer causal relationships from experimental data specifically. Um, and so that's, yeah. So I spent like 10 years of my life pursuing, pursuing that kind of question. Um, and there's a lot of graph theory involved. There's a lot of uh, a lot of probability theory involved, especially around uh, Bayesian probability uh, um, uh, and uh, the, the Markov condition and things like that.
0: So basically, you were involved more in like in technical side of, of philosophy.
1: It was extremely math heavy, um, which is very unusual for for a lot of philosophy. Um, and so one of the things that I was that I, I really was able to take away from Learning philosophy and bring it in my job now is how to take an extremely technical concept and present it in a way that's engaging and intelligible to uh, an intelligent but non-technical audience, right? Or I should say, an audience that doesn't have the the, the technical background to understand, yeah. um, you know, the claims as couched in the, the formal language of you know Bayesian probabilities and graph theory and so forth. Um, you know, these are people who who answered very difficult questions, but in a completely different different field. Uh, and so how do you how do you make this this material accessible to them uh, and engaging for them? Um, and that's that's a, a skill that I think has served me probably better than any other skill that I that I acquired over for the innumerable years in school.
0: Yeah, I, I can imagine because there are um, a lot of engineers um, like I, I want to say majority, but I don't want to upset anyone that really don't know how to speak to to normal people that are outside so like the uh, not nice term would be normies but basically like people that are not uh technically um like i don't know that don't have any technical background um and a lot of engineers just don't know how to speak with them properly
1: yeah and it kind of goes the other way too um uh in the sense that, in my experience, a lot of engineers don't really know how to engage with somebody who studied the humanities. Oh, uh, yeah, right? yeah. People who study the humanities have so much good and interesting stuff to share with the world. Um, but if it's not couched in a technical language, then it's, it's not especially interesting to a lot of engineers, unfortunately. Um, and I think this is, I think it's more of a cultural divide than uh, a knowledge divide. Right.
0: I, I think it's an it's a skill like any other. Like you can acquire it, but it won't just come up naturally unless you work on that.
1: Yeah, you have to have the desire to to work on that skill, right? Just like well, just like any other skill, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely definitely a skill that I I wish more people had. I would like to be put out of this job.
0: Mm. And is there like a certain philosophy, like life philosophy you follow? Uh, life philosophy um or like do you do you read philosophy texts and then ponder on them just like in your free time or or something like that or is it just strictly technical for you
1: almost all the philosophy work that i did was extremely extremely technical Mm -hmm. um and like like a lot of philosophers it was very very niche uh to be to be successful in academic philosophy you know you have to carve out a, a very narrow specialty uh, where you can contribute to it because as you can imagine, you know, the big questions of philosophy are, are really, really big. They're really big. Um, and so to make any kind of progress, you have to, you have to focus down and specialize really, really tightly on things. And so for me, my, you know, I had a very narrow focus on, you know, this, um, this particular branch of, of metaphysics, you know, of which there may be like 12 people in the world who are actively working on it. Um, and so, it's not to say like it's it's super awesome or super special. It's just a very narrow interest, let's say.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm asking because I recently got, well, I'm more and more involved with the Stoic philosophy and Stoic way of life. Uh-huh. And I, I read this book, The Daily Stoic, which basically opens that back in Greece. And, you know, even Roman times or whatever, um, having a life philosophy, like a thing you follow, the thing you orient your life around was a thing. Mm. And, like, the further on we progress, like, the less a thing it became. And it opens, like, it, it doesn't matter what thing you follow, like, either you're, I don't know, a hedonist or a cynic or whatever, just, like, big one and and because your life will have more meaning if you actually follow something and not just like wander around aimlessly and um like you know it's one of those things that once you read it you're like huh maybe there's something to that
1: (laughs) yeah i can i could definitely see see the appeal of of approaching life that way i i often think i should have like a, a principled approach to to things and i don't think that i have ever tried to articulate one although i suspect that were i to do so it wouldn't be super duper difficult um i think i'm still in a bit of recovery period from studying philosophy (laughs) (laughs) yeah overexposed right (laughs) a bit overexposed yeah so it's very difficult for me to to get into that kind of thing without overanalyzing it and wanting to raise criticisms and write papers and uh it's tough but on that note, have you ever seen The Good Place on Netflix or yes. uh, on television? Just, so, this is a show that we've been watching, and that I think Silicon Valley, for example, is a show that becomes funnier when you've lived in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And The Good Place is definitely a show that becomes funnier when you've studied philosophy.
0: Oh, well, yeah, I, I, I can imagine. I actually, it's funny you bring it up because I am just now re watching it. And without giving anything away, um, n- no. Like watching it second time is even better than the first time because of the things that you know are coming um, uh i haven't actually watched it a second time through now i'm gonna have to uh, but i mean you you watched the the first season right yes so so you know the the end twist right yes and the thing is if you watch it back with that in mind it all makes sense from the get-go like they they placed so many interesting tidbits in there that if you know what's gonna happen make perfect sense and like second time around it's like oh obviously right it's it's really good. Like it's a very very good series. I really recommend that. Yeah, we've 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 definitely definitely enjoyed. It. So yeah, actually, I I said the Daily Stoic, which is also a good book. But actually, what I meant was a guide to the good life. Basically, what this uh, author does, like William, so he's a philosopher who read a lot of books, uh, like professor whatever, and he goes back and basically reevaluates and. Um, sort of rethinks all of the original what the original stoics said and basically put it in our time and so, sort of reinterprets it for like the um the life that we have today and it's um it's a very uh good book and i would recommend anyone to read like whether or not they are interested in like philosophy or stoicism or or not but it um it's a short book and it gives a nice overview of like um the the philosophy and uh his his idea of how we should be living to actually have like more fulfilling life which is in the end what matters right yes
1: well i might i might have to give this book a look i think i think if if i were to pick an ism to sum up uh our our way of living life it would be it would be aristotelianism um so you know aristotle is, is quite well known for for uh advocating that um in any given situation there's a, there, there's a happy medium right mm-hmm. if you go too far in, in one direction or too far in the other um you're you're living a, a life of excess and it will bring you unhappiness right so um you know go out and be loud and enjoy time with your friends in in moderation not too much not too little right um uh, or um, I'm trying to think of other examples of, of the, the sorts of questions that come up, but it's it's uh, it's not not coming to me in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the idea was that yeah, you know you you find you find the the happy medium between between extremes, um, and that you can use that as your your guide for uh, you know choosing the right action in a moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I I also subscribe to that um, in in theory. The problem with that is that. Um, everyone thinks moderation is like in a different place and it's really hard to say like what's really um good without you convincing yourself that oh it's it's something else
1: yeah aristotle had a very unconvincing theory that there was exactly one right answer to that question and the virtuous person the person who'd been raised right knows what that is but then like who's virtuous how do we know who the <laughs> virtuous person is how do we know how to raise people right exactly uh, decides, so that they right? would know that yeah it's it's, it's fraught
0: <laughs> to put it lightly so yeah philosophy <laughs> yes um so let's uh let's wrap this up with um since we already went now deep uh it's like three books or three articles or whatever like three things that um made an impact on your on your life or like three things that you could recommend to someone if if they come to you and say oh can can you recommend i don't know three books or three articles or three videos or like whatever
1: oh man that's a tough one um i'm looking behind me now at my my bookshelf and i'm not going to find much inspiration there because i don't have many books anymore <laughs> so the short stories of of uh Jorge Luis Borges, uh, the Argentinian writer, uh, I think had a a huge impact on me. So he's one of the the early writers in a, 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 a genre that we might now call magical realism. Um, and he wrote, uh, you know, in the early to mid 20th century, you know, he was um, quite early in the genre and helped, helped shape it. He was very uh, influenced in turn also by, by surrealism. Mm-hmm. And so all of his short stories take one really, really creative concept um, and run with it uh, and take it interesting places. And I, I found it um, very imaginative. Uh, I found it very inspiring uh, for myself. Um, but I also found that he has um, a very interestingly developed notion of uh, of uh, how our minds work. Um, that was actually pretty influential for me when I was studying cognitive psychology and artificial intelligence. So there's um, there's a story called uh, I'm going to murder these names. Uh, <laughs> Fuenes the Memorias. Uh, that was about um, uh, a man who was incapable of forgetting anything. Um, And it's very easy when you read that story to think of this character um, in terms of uh, a machine learning algorithm and to understand uh, why it is that machine learning algorithms often do what they do, uh, the kinds of biases that they can exhibit, especially in the face of the the kind of data that, that they're given. Um, you know, and given that he was writing this in the what, the 1920s and 1930s, I think hmm. um, you know it's 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 really it's just a very interesting insight into into contemporary problems. And many of his stories work like this too. You can look at that and say, "Oh, this has a this has a, a fascinating analog to, to something that we're we're dealing with as a as a society today." And he has some some interesting insights to share. Um, so that's the. F- First thing I would I would recommend. Um, the second, um I'm terrible with pronouncing names because I never have to say them out loud. Uh, in a very similar genre, but much, much more recent is China Miaville. Um and he has a book in particular um called The City in the City, uh that had a a a surprising influence on me. Um I don't want to reveal the the twist in the book, uh, although the twist comes early. He doesn't seem to want you to know it at first when you when you read it. Um, so I'm not going to reveal it. But there's lots of ways to read that book. Um, okay. But one of the ways that, that I read it, and of course he he never intended it this way, but it, but it makes for for interesting read. It is as a um, as a uh, a parable about San Francisco. <laughs> So, of course, in San Francisco, there's a huge wealth disparity and the, the very, very wealthy and the very, very poor live side by side and in, in parallel worlds. Um, and this notion of living side by side in parallel worlds uh, is exactly what what this book is exploring uh, and the impact that it has on the, the people in these worlds and the way that they live their life and the way that um, people outside of this environment perceive them. Um and so like I said, there's lots of different ways to read the book, but having lived in San Francisco, this is this is what came to my mind immediately as I read it. Um and I think it's a it's a fantastic parable of well, a variety of things, but certainly, you know living living in these two parallel worlds of the, the very rich and the very poor.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a thing of, of San Francisco, which is like to me unimaginable like you have all these startups thinking they're changing the world but like right next to them are like really homeless people um, in just like the full of them in in just one alley it's just it's insane yeah. it's um it's, it's it's surreal
1: um i'm trying to think what the third one might even be what would the third one be i'm not sure <laughs> so the third one, uh, I think, is, as we discussed earlier, it's, it's the good place. Um, I think this is one of the first times I've seen a television show um, make academic philosophy accessible to to a broader audience. Um, which, now that I say this out loud, is one of these recurring themes for me. Right? Is making making difficult things accessible to other people. Mm. And they've they've done a really good job of. Presenting not just the sort of difficult problems that exist uh, in moral philosophy uh, but presenting uh, the different approaches that that different authors or, or writers um, have taken to solving these problems in moral philosophy and it does so in a way that doesn't beat you over the head with it but actually makes it actually makes it very funny
0: also the the actors are just amazing yeah, the, like the acting all, is all the main guys are just insanely good like all yeah. of them.
1: The acting, the acting is very good. The the, the deadpan humor is, is very much um, my style. But um, yeah, I think I think the reason I'd recommend it to others is precisely because uh, it gets so much about the philosophy so right, mm-hmm. and it gets so much about um, philosophers right too. Uh, there, there's that line, um, uh, and this is why nobody likes moral philosophers, <laughs> something like that, right? Yeah, <laughs> and it, and it's true. It's
0: so true. <laughs> yeah so i guess your spiritual uh uh like character there is uh gg uh
1: yeah i think so actually Chidi and my wife have a lot in common my wife is a moral philosopher
0: oh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: who's directionally challenged
0: <laughs>
1: so there's lots of cheaty jokes
0: so, and, and you said no one likes them. So how can you two are together? <laughs> well, I was studying philosophy
1: too, so I could. I could no, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> no, not not everybody's like like Chidi. Chidi's uh, Chidi's definitely special.
0: <laughs> yeah. And on that note, um, well, uh, thank you, thank you, Don, for being on this uh, podcast. I I really enjoy talking with you.
1: It was it was my pleasure as well. Thanks for having me, Mihai.
0: Yeah, pleasure is all mine thanks see you bye all right this was my interview with Don. even though this is episode number 10 parallel passion is a new podcast sharing with your friends and followings helps us a lot one way to do so is to write a review in apple podcasts or if you use a different app you should rate favorite like or whatever your podcast type of choice supports and if you really want to make my day share it on twitter and facebook If you enjoyed this show, you can also support it with your hard-earned money. You can do so via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash parpasspod. That's patreon.com slash p-a-r-p-a-s-p-o-d. Or open the show notes in your podcast app and follow the Patreon link there. Every dollar counts. Thanks. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We are at ParpassPod on all of them. All the links from this episode are in the show notes in your podcast app and on our website parallelpassion.com/10. Thank you and have a passionate day.